This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode discussing the bard of democracy, the great Walt Whitman. Today, we will feature one of his four poems honoring President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, But in order to understand why Whitman and many of us admire this great man, we uh, want to revisit the original 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass and listen to some of Whitman's observations of African-Americans and slavery. And uh, Christy, let's start this episode by reading and discussing two extracts from his work, I Sing the Body Electric, and the ones where Whitman describes an African man and an African woman at auction. A man's body at auction. For before the war, I often go to the slave mart and watch the sale. I help the auctioneer. The Slavin does not half know his business. Gentlemen, look at this wonder. Whatever the bids of the bidders, they cannot be high enough for it. For it the globe lay preparing quintillions of years without one animal or plant. For it the revolving cycles truly and steadily rolled. In this head the all-baffling brain. In it and below it the markings of heroes. Examine these limbs red, black, or white. They are cunning in tendon and nerve. They shall be stripped that you may see them. Exquisite senses, life-lit eyes, pluck, volition, flakes of breast muscle, pliant backbone and neck, flesh, not flabby, good-sized arms and legs and wonders within there yet. Within there runs blood, the same old blood, the same red running blood. There swells and jets a heart. There are passions, desires, reachings, aspirations. Do you think they are not there because they're not expressed in parlors and letter rooms? This is not only one man. This, the father of those who shall be fathers in their turns. In him, the start of populous states and rich republics 
of him countless immortal lives, lives with countless embodiments and enjoyments. How do you know who shall come from the offspring of his offspring through the centuries? Who might you find you have come from yourself if you could trace back through the centuries? A woman's body at auction, she too is not only herself. She is the teeming mother of mothers. She is the bearer of them that shall grow and be mates to the mothers. Have you ever loved the body of a woman? Have you ever loved the body of a man? Do you not see that these are exactly the same to all in all nations and times all over the earth? If anything is sacred, the human body is sacred. And the glory and sweet of a man is the token of manhood untainted. And in man or woman, a clean, strong, firm findered body is more beautiful than the most beautiful face. Have you seen the fool that corrupted his own live body or the fool that corrupted her own live body? For they do not conceal themselves and cannot conceal themselves. Wow. Pretty strong statement there. Uh, it really is. You know, Whitman was raised um, a New York Democrat, but his sympathies were later on with the Free Soil Party that condemned the extension of slavery as a sin against God and a, a crime against man. And the Republican Party would not even exist until 1854, and, and Lincoln would be their presidential candidate in the, um, the election of 1860. And, of course, bear in mind, that the issues of those days are different than the issues of the day. So the party name shouldn't be taken to represent any kind of modern-day politics. As a matter of fact, one of the things we talk about in history is that the, our two political parties have been stealing each other's ideological baggage for a long, long time. Well, for Whitman, it was just undeniable for anyone with eyeballs that all men are born human, and that implies certain things, regardless if they're born free or slave of any race, creed, or gender. I mean, it's very clear. It is obvious to a man like Whitman, who was so aware of the physical body, that we are of the same atom. The magnificence of the body proclaims our humanity. And ironically, where on earth could this magnificence be most easily seen than at a slave auction like he witnessed during his New Orleans days? In all of that ruthless degradation, it ironically showcased the magnificence of man and of the human body. It's why Whitman could say almost sarcastically, I am a better salesman of slaves than that auctioneer because I know and I understand the beauty and the value, the infinite value of what you're selling. And you don't, you fool. Whitman was the poet of the democratic soul. We are, after all, leaves of grass. But he was also the poet of the body, that physical form that we're all chained to. For Whitman, to be a human was to understand and be okay with your physical body and see that it's a holy thing. Our souls inhabit a sacred space on earth, that of our bodies, be it a man or a woman. And the pigmentation of our flesh is just one of the many individual and unique features that we all have. For Whitman, our bodies... That's the starting point for equality. We are all wedded in this way, one to another, and our soul to our body. It doesn't seem radical to us now, but at that time in history, even talking about the body like that was revolutionary, uh, almost vulgar. And um, 
Whitman uh, democratically equates the man with the woman. We don't want to miss that. He also democratically equates the black with the white. And in 1855, uh, this was not self-evident anywhere else in the United States of America or really anywhere on planet Earth. He was espousing a totally new idea. Sure. And by 1855, Whitman also knew that his country was falling apart. He understood that the ideals on which this great American experiment had been founded were being overwhelmed by all kinds of forces, not the least of which was plain, ordinary corruption. In his mind, and this is really interesting that he would be so idealistic to think this, but he really believed that the world just needed to repent. We needed to course correct, to return to the original ideals our original conversion to this set of moral ideals uh, that we were going to embrace and revisit the democratic ideals kind of that he'd been writing about and reading about. And he really believed that by absorbing leaves of grass, if people would just read his book, (laughs) they would remember all this and they would stop hating each other. Oh, wow. Just through a book of poetry, huh? Well, I mean, it's a nice thought. I know. Slightly unrealistic, but... (laughs) Uh, it could have worked. Well, especially in light of the single-digit sales of that first edition. That was a, that was a sign. Uh, but even if he had gotten everyone to read his book, it was still a tall order. I mean, by 1860, any kind of uh, peaceful reconciliation was just unrealistic. And America was on the brink of war, and violence was springing up. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite historical psychopaths, John Brown... <laughs> Uh, is one notable example, you know, in an attempt to free slaves through violence, he and a small gang stormed Harper's Ferry, which is a military fortress, basically. Uh, they were captured and tried and condemned to death. And this event inflamed the country and it raised the stakes for the upcoming presidential election. Uh, a few months after Brown was executed, the Democratic Party split between pro and anti-slavery factions. And uh, it had to confront a brand new political party one that had never existed before, and that was the Republican Party. Uh, It had nominated a Southern-born, anti-slavery man from Illinois, a lawyer who had never really attended much formal school, but who was known, you know, colloquially as Honest Abe. Uh, A newspaper in South Carolina put it this way, and remember, South Carolina is the epicenter of secession. The irrepressible conflict is about to be vised upon us through the black Republican nominee and his fanatical, diabolical Republican Party. Well, how do they feel about that? (laughs) I think they're they're not for it. (laughs) No. Well, Walt Whitman uh, did not see Lincoln as an instigator of conflict. He saw him almost as an extension of himself. He really saw himself in Lincoln, a mediator. He really believed that Lincoln was going to bring healing and unity through politics. So the poetry didn't work, but Lincoln through politics was going to be able to pull this off. Um, I'm not sure which is a greater (laughs) challenge, trying to unify a nation through poetry or through politics. I know. Well, but Whitman was paying attention to what Lincoln was saying. And he identified with him, and he saw himself in Lincoln. I mean, they had both come from poor families. Neither had formal education. I mean, Whitman didn't have much, but Lincoln had less than that. One thing that really charmed Whitman uh, about Lincoln was that he was from the West. And Whitman really believed that the hope of America lay in the West. 
Both of these men believed in democracy to the core, but also both believed in unity. Whitman saw Lincoln as America's hope. And you know, one thing I would want to say they have in common too, these two men had an otherworldly use of words. Yeah, they really did. They were fantastic in word choice and ideas that they communicated with minimal words. And, um, you know, although Lincoln was likely the most hated man of his age in some corners of the country, but he's also seen as the only hope of America in other places. And uh, Lincoln wanted first and foremost to be a unifier. He had been elected with a little bit less than 40% of the popular vote. So keep in mind, 60% of the country voted against him. Uh, (laughs) That's not a mandate, poor guy. That is not good news. Uh, He did get a majority of the electoral college votes. And so there was no question America was deeply divided. And he wanted not just to save the physical boundaries of America, but he wanted to heal the wounds that were making people hate each other. And Lincoln's father was anti-slavery and raised as an anti-slavery Baptist uh, in his younger days. And uh, But his mother was from Kentucky, from a Kentucky slaveholding family. And Lincoln later recalled that the reason his father left Kentucky and the South was because of his strong feelings about slavery. And Lincoln himself saw many cruel things while visiting his grandparents, Um, you know, not the least of these being once when an African-American family was separated on a boat and sold uh, to different owners. He later recalled that that sight was a continual torment to me, having the power of making me miserable. That's really deep empathy. And However, Lincoln's mother's family uh, were people he knew intimately, and somehow he understood that someone could support slavery not being an evil person. That sounds crazy to us and difficult to understand, uh, but Lincoln expressed on more than one occasion to men across the North that if they had been born in those circumstances in that place and in that world— they likely would have had those same views. And this way of seeing one's fellow man is more radical than most of us can even comprehend. I mean, it's a strange idea to assert that a person could believe something is morally wrong and they believe it so strongly that they would be willing to lead a nation to war to end it, but simultaneously judge the perpetrators of this evil as redeemable humans. I mean, 95% of humans can't even think like that today. No, but it is something that Whitman uh, could understand, and he kind of thought like that. Uh, Whitman didn't fight in the Civil War, but his brother George did. His brother George fought for the Union, but Whitman's significant other fought at one point for the Confederacy. Hmm, complicated. Yeah. <laughs> As many things were in the antebellum Always period. are. Well, you know, the first shots of the Civil War were fired by the South on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, in April of 1861. And, you know, Lincoln had just been president for a few weeks. True. But in December of 1862, that's not long after the start, Whitman saw his brother's name, his brother George, on a list of the casualties. Well, he did what most of us would have done. He jumped on a train and headed south to look for his brother. He ended up in Fredericksburg. The good news was that his brother only suffered a flesh wound and he was able to find him. But outside the hospital there, Whitman saw something that struck horror, really, and terror into his being. I want to read his words after he came to the building that was being used as the hospital. He said this, 
I saw a heap of amputated feet, legs, arms, hands, etc. A full load for a one-horse cart, human fragments, cut bloody, black and blue and swelled and sickening, and nearby were several dead bodies, each covered with its brown woolen blanket. You have to remember, listen to what we just read at the beginning when we were reading I Sing the Body Electric. Whitman is a man who had been trying to convince America for quite some time to celebrate our bodies, all of our bodies. We just read the uh, excerpt about the African-American gentleman that he had described. Uh, He wanted us to see ourselves and other people's bodies to you know, recognize the sanctity of bodies. And here he is staring at all these body parts scattered around, cut up in piles. I mean, I can't even imagine how it would smell. Well, Whitman's reaction to what he saw on the, on the battlefield and in that field hospital at Fredericksburg led him to make a decision that altered really the course of his life. Uh, he did not go back home. He moved to Washington, D.C., and spent the rest of the war doing something that I think kind of makes him a saint. And Fredericksburg, before he left, um, he stuck around long enough to help bury the dead of the over 18,000 soldiers that had just been left lying on the ground. Uh, But while he was there, he also visited hospitals. And these are the visits that affected him. Uh, He decided that he couldn't go back to New York. uh, So he went to D.C., got a job as a clerk where he would work during the day. But that wasn't really why he went there. He went there to spend his time in those hospitals, those soldier hospitals. And he would just sit with the soldiers. He wasn't a doctor. He didn't really care if they had fought for the Union or for the Confederacy. He brought bags of candy. He actually raised money to buy things like candy and pens. And he would write letters to people's parents. He played 20 questions for hours. If they wanted him to read the Bible, he would read the Bible. But if the next guy wanted to smoke a cigarette, he'd find him a cigarette. Many of these soldiers were teenagers, and he would kiss them, and he would hug them, and he would parent them often into their final moments of life. For a lot of these soldiers, this would be the last kind face they would see on this earth. Documentation now reveals that he spent time with somewhere between 80 to 100 thousand soldiers that is so impressive and and let me interrupt you for a second to highlight how bad it was to be in a hospital during the civil war no one at this time really understood the importance of antiseptics they were not really up on germ theory or the need to be clean and you know the union army lost over three hundred thousand lives in combat but they experienced an estimated 6,400,000 cases of illnesses and wounds and injuries. I mean, hospitals were filthy and dangerous places, as, almost as filthy and dangerous as the battlefield. So basically, you're better off just going down in the field than being shipped yes, off. Yes, it would be uh, more merciful. Well, for many of, of these young men, uh, like I said, Whitman would be the last touch of kindness they had experienced on these earth. And their parents knew that, and many of them kept up with Whitman, you know, for the rest of their lives. Later on, he would say of those years of hospital service, and I want to quote him again, the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course, the most profound lesson of my life is what he got out of that. 
He would leave the hospital at night, oftentimes sleep in this room that he rented. But sometimes he wouldn't leave the hospital at all. If a soldier asked him to stay, he would. And he would stay with men all night who were wounded or dying. And sometimes he would go straight from the hospital to the office. And I I quote him again. While I was with wounded and sick in thousands of cases from the New England states and from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and from Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and all the western states, I was with more or less from all the states, north and south, without exception. I was with many rebel officers and men among our wounded and gave them always what I had and tried to cheer them the same as any among the black soldiers, wounded or sick, in the contraband camps. I also took my way whenever in their neighborhood, and I did what I could for them. Well, let me also say that that Washington, D.C. itself was a nasty place to be living at the time. Physically, it was a construction zone, uh, you know, nothing like the beautiful collection of buildings and streets designed by the French architect Pierre L'Enfant that we see today. I mean, it was a muddy, noisy mess. It was full of the noises of building and killing and it was political on top of that and abraham lincoln stated during those days if there's a worse place than hell i am in it is he talking about the city because it was just so bad well yes but also the idea that you know being present during the civil war is pretty bad too and you know lincoln had a different view of his role of leadership than most people today understand and and we need to go back to when he was elected in 1860. I mean, the country was divided. And even if you didn't believe in slavery, the question of how to get rid of it wasn't something that people could agree on. Uh, many thought it should just be abolished. Others thought you should just keep it from expanding, let it die slowly. You know, Lincoln was surrounded by people on all sides who wanted him to have bold leadership and do radical things, whatever those were to them. But uh, Lincoln liked to respond to his critics by referencing an entertainer who was known for tightrope walking over water. Uh, Sometimes he would even push a wheelbarrow across those ropes. And one time this guy stopped in the middle of the river to eat an omelet on his (laughs) tightrope. And sometimes he'd carry someone on his back, you know, all kind of crazy stunts that didn't seem survivable. Uh, Lincoln had seen this man perform walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And Lincoln thought it was a perfect metaphor for how he saw himself. And, you know, let me quote Lincoln here. Uh, By the way, the artist went by the name Blondin. So Lincoln says this, that all the material values in this great country of ours, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, its wealth, its prosperity, its achievements in the present, and its hopes for the future, could all have been concentrated and given to Blondin to carry over that awful crossing. Suppose you'd been standing upon the shore as he was going over, or as he was carefully feeling his way along and balancing his pole with all his most delicate skill over the thundering cataract. Would you have shouted at him, Blondin, a step to the right, Blondin, a step to the left, or would you have stood there speechless and held your breath and prayed to the Almighty to guide and help him safely through the trial? So he's telling people to shut up. <laughs> yes. So, you know, Lincoln saw himself on a tightrope, and going too far one way or the other would have made the entire thing collapse, and he wasn't going to crush and destroy his fellow man, uh, even his southern brothers. 
Although he was trying to win the war and emancipate the slaves, which he accomplished both, he was trying to heal a nation and to bring brother back to brother. And we can't ever forget that brothers were literally killing their brothers. And uniting and building a country uh, that was this morally divided was a seemingly impossible task. And he could see that from his perch in Washington, D.C., that all of this was hell. And it reminds me of my famous or one of my favorite quotes by historian James McPherson. Uh, when he talks about Lincoln, he said Lincoln always acted with an informed central vision. In other words, he could always see past the hell into what he was trying to accomplish. Well, Whitman would stop to see Lincoln go into that White House every day while he was going back and forth to his job or, or to the hospital. And this was in the days where you could actually do that. They didn't have secret service surrounding the president. Uh, and Whitman was said to have looked at Lincoln and have seen sadness in his eyes. But Whitman always believed that Lincoln was the right man. If anyone could heal America, it was under Lincoln's leadership because Lincoln didn't hate his enemy. He loved his enemy just like Whitman did. This was the attitude where Whitman saw hope in a future as he sat with both Confederate and Union soldier, black soldiers and white soldiers, and mending their wounds and, and writing their final farewells. True. But let's make no mistake, Lincoln was committed to emancipation. Uh, and as the war came to the end and Reconstruction was in sight, he was preparing America uh, to get ready to grant full citizenship. That included voting rights to all American males, including African-American males. And in one letter, he said, um, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not think so and feel so. And yet, this is the same man who could say during his second inaugural address one month before General Lee would surrender at Appomattox, by the way, 40 days before Lincoln was murdered, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right. As God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That is an extremely conciliatory second inaugural address. I mean, he's sending a message loud and clear that he intends to reunite the North and the South. However, there was one man in that inauguration crowd that day uh, who was actually so close to Lincoln that he shows up in the inauguration photograph. This man heard those words, and he was committed to stopping Lincoln from fulfilling that exact pledge. John Wilkes Booth was standing not far from Lincoln that day. Uh, and on April 11th, what we know now was to be his last speech, Lincoln called for black suffrage. Booth was in the audience that day as well, and after hearing Lincoln make that statement, Booth is known to have said, that is the last speech he will ever make. And of course it was. On that fateful day, four days later, April 15, 1865, Whitman, by the way, was visiting his family, but his significant other, Peter Doyle, was in Washington, D.C., and had heard that the president was going to Ford's Theater to see a performance of the comedy My American Cousin. It was Good Friday, that's a sacred day where Christians celebrate the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, well, let me just say this is let me read what Peter Doyle said happened that evening. 
I heard that the president and his wife would be present and made up my mind to go. There was a great crowd in the building. I got into the second gallery. There was nothing extraordinary in the performance. I saw everything on the stage and was in a good position to see the president's box. I heard the pistol shot. I had no idea what it was, but it meant sort of muffled. I really knew nothing of what had occurred until Mrs. Lincoln leaned out of the box and cried, The president is shot! I needn't tell you how I felt then or saw. It was all put down in Walt's piece. That piece is exactly right. I saw Booth on the Booth on the cushion of the box, saw him jump over, saw him catch his foot, which turned, saw him fall on the stage. He got up on his feet, cried out something which I could not hear for the hubbub, and disappeared. I suppose I lingered almost the last person. A soldier came into the gallery, saw me still there, called to me, Get out of here. We're going to burn this damn building down. I said, if that is so, I'll get out. Whitman used Doyle's account to help pen the only poem that I know of where Whitman used traditional poetic forms. It's an elegy for the death of Abraham Lincoln. Titled, O Captain, My Captain. He actually wrote more than one elegy. Uh, One this one was speaking for the nation, but in the voice of a common soldier. He wrote it in a formal style of poetry acceptable to most people of that day. He wrote another one uh, later on. Well, we don't really know what the order is that they wrote it. But the second one was more personal because it was in his style and in the style that we see in the rest of Leaves of Grass. The second poem, When Lilacs, is often thought to be written after the O Captain, but I'm not sure. Um, It's more epic in its feeling. It uses symbols that are more archetypal and timeless, although that term wasn't invented back then. In O Captain, My Captain, Whitman takes on the persona of a soldier, a sailor. sailor. In the second, he uses his own voice, that universal I, like we see in Song of Myself. We don't have time to read the entirety of When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloom. It's over 200 lines long. Uh, We will read a little bit of it, but instead, let's focus on the only poem anthologized during Whitman's lifetime, Oh, Captain, My Captain. You know, this is the one I know from the famous scene in Dead Poet Society, where the students stand up for their fallen teacher, uh, John Keating, who was immortalized by Robert Williams. That scene where they all stand on the desk is amazing. I know. I always think of it, too, and I can't listen to this poem without thinking about Robin Williams. But I will try because I want to think about Lincoln. Right, we sp- <laughs> that's the sense that w- w- that uh, the setup and and you know the best way to to listen to it originally. Want to read it? Yes. Oh, captain, my captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But, O oh heart, 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 O oh the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen, cold, and dead. O oh captain, my captain, rise up and hear the bells. Rise up, for you the flag is flung, for you the bugle trills. For you, bouquets and ribbon wreaths, for you, the shores a crowding. For you, they call the swaying mass, their eager faces turning. Here, Captain, dear father, this arm beneath your head, it is some dream that on the deck you've fallen cold and dead. My captain does not answer. His lips are pale and still. 
My father does not feel my arm. He has no pulse nor will. The ship is anchored safe and sound. Its voyage closed and done. From fearful trip, the victor ship comes in with object one. Exalt those shores and ring bells. But I with mournful tread walk the deck. My captain lies fallen, cold and dead. Whitman, the defender of the common man never elevates one person over another in any of his poems, except for here. For Lincoln, he'll make a notable exception. O Captain, My Captain is written from the point of view of an insider. We can imagine this young soldier, this sailor. He's on the ship, and of course, the captain is President Lincoln. The ship is the country. The tone goes from exaltation to distress, He's saying, we had finished. The the trip, the fearful trip was done. We had made it. The Confederacy had vacated Richmond. On April 4th, President Lincoln, together with his 10-year-old son, Tad, walked through the streets of Richmond and into Jefferson Davis's office. And Admiral Porter, who was with him, had this to say. No electric wire could have carried the news of the president's arrival sooner than it was circulated through Richmond. As far as the eye could see, the streets were alive with Negroes and poor whites rushing in our direction, and the crowd increased so fast that I had to surround the president with sailors with fixed bayonets to keep them off. They all wanted to shake hand with Mr. Lincoln or his coattail or even to kneel and kiss his boots. Later on, Admiral Porter would also have this to say, I should have preferred to see the President of the United States entering the subjugated stronghold of the rebel with an escort more befitting his high station. Yet that would have looked as if he came as a conqueror to exult over a brave but fallen enemy. He came instead as a peacemaker, his hand extended to all who desired to take it. You know, Christy, at one point it said that uh, an older African-American former slave bowed before Lincoln, and uh, Lincoln went to the man, took him by the hand, and raised him up and told him he didn't need to kneel to anyone. He was a free man. I mean, can you even imagine that moment? No, I can't. Uh, But we can try to imagine the emotion. I mean, after so much carnage, who could walk the tightrope and heal that utter hatred? It was inherent in the heart of the person that had won, as well as the person that had been defeated. Notice that in this poem, there's meter. Each stanza is composed of I am's, which may or may not mean anything to you, but it's trying to represent that beat, like a drum beat or the beat of the heart. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The people are exalting. But then the captain dies. In the first two stanzas, the boy addresses the captain as someone that's still alive. But by the third stanza, he's accepted the reality. And of course, this is exactly how grief strikes. You know, we never accept it initially. At least that's the problem I have. It's natural. He says, rise up, father. We feel his sense of desperation. This idea of, no, 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 this can't be happening. It's not possible. Not now. Not after all this. But by that third stanza, the sailor unwillingly has to switch to the third person. My captain does not answer. His lips are pale and still. 
and we feel that sense of intimacy. My father does not feel my arm. He has no pulse, no will. We also see that the formality of the meter kind of breaks down towards the end, and we finally get to fallen, cold, and dead. The sailor has broken down. America is not just devastated because a great leader is dead, but the great leader has now left us all vulnerable. What's going to happen to us? Who can lead us? Who can walk the tightrope? And, you know, that, of course, is the ultimate tragedy. We will never know what might have been had he lived to complete his second term. But one statesman grasped fully the tragedy, you know, when he predicted that the development of things will teach us to mourn him doubly. You know, and, and when he dies, uh, the, the phrase that's uttered in Lincoln's presence is, now he belongs to the ages. Everybody knew of his greatness and how much larger the whole problem was going to be. And uh, even Jefferson Davis, the leader of the Confederacy, um, you know, although I point out that Lincoln never one time acknowledged him as a president, even he bemoaned Lincoln's death after losing the war and for good reason. After Lincoln's death, uh, profiteers and corruption and all kinds of chaos are going to descend upon America. And Grant, who was a sincere and incredible advocate for African-Americans, was able to defeat the Confederate armies, but he was not able to contain just that host of corruption that plagued our nation during Reconstruction. And so we end with Whitman's final poem, his most personal tribute to Lincoln, and the one that many consider to be the better, maybe if it is the less famous uh, of the tributes, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloom. In this poem, Whitman reverts to that usual style we associate with him of free verse and those strong metaphors. It's beautiful, and for me, it's where we see the universal truth of lost moral leadership and grief emerge. He expresses loss well beyond that moment of Lincoln. Let's just read the first little bit. The whole thing is long. It references the journey of Lincoln's casket to his final resting place without ever really mentioning Lincoln's name. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed and the great star early drooped in the western sky in the night, I mourned and yet shall mourn with ever-returning spring. Ever-returning spring, trinity, sure to me you bring, lilac blooming perennial and drooping star in the west, and thought of him I love. O powerful western fallen star, O shades of night, O moody tearful night, O great star disappeared, O the black murk that hides the star, O cruel hands that hold me powerless, O helpless soul of me, Oh, harsh surrounding cloud that will not free my soul. There are three big symbols uh, in the poem, the lilacs, the sun, and then a bird. But since we only read the first two stanzas, uh, we'll focus on what we see there. Lilacs are flowers that have a strong smell, and they were blooming at the time of Lincoln's death. They're beautiful, but they're perennial. They return every spring. The star is obviously a symbol for Lincoln, and I want to point out that in weekend. Wheatman's other poetry, he never uses stars as positive images for leaders because he doesn't like the idea of a ruler, you know, hoarding over us like a star. But in Lincoln's case, he made an exception because Lincoln was that powerful star. And of course, we're left to answer 
why would a man like Whitman so bent on equality of humans elevate this one man, the only man he would elevate? It wasn't just because he was the president, but it was because he embodied what a great leader was. And that's a nice idea that I think continues to resonate through the ages. You know, agreed. Uh, average leaders, and I will say most leaders, give lip service to serving all the people, but uh, we can see by their actions that a lot of that's propaganda. Most of them are in it for much more personal reasons, and it's easy to get to the top and view oneself as superior than the rest of us. It's just natural to do what's best for me or my team, you know, so to speak. And it's natural to want to put enemies in submission and uh, prove your own power and your own greatness. But Lincoln was different. His compassion for his enemy and his unwavering commitment to integrity and his ability to see beyond his current moment is something that will outlast us all. And the South, as well as the North, mourned deeply over at Lincoln's loss. I mean, the procession described in this poem where the casket was taken from Washington, D.C., Back to Illinois was something that had never happened in the history of the United States, and it's not happened since then. And so he is a star, a legacy of leadership that Whitman not only admired, but immortalized. It's a legacy that I find inspiring no matter how great or small our little ships are, if we ever want to be called a captain. It's something to think about when we smell lilacs in the spring. For Whitman, every time he smelled those flowers, we grieve, but also we remember because just like lilacs return every spring, so does a new opportunity. The end of the lilac poem looks to the future. In another of Whitman's great poems, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, he says this, We use you and do not cast you aside. We plant you permanently within us. We fathom you not. We love you. There is perfection in you also. You furnish your parts toward eternity. Great or small, you furnish your parts toward the soul. It's a nice idea. Lincoln was a man, but for Whitman, he embodied an ideal that we can all aspire to. Integrity, humility, compassion, grace, and defeat, and death, but also in victory. Whitman believed in those ideals and leadership, leadership that embraces those things that can lead a ship to harbor in scary waters. Perhaps when we smell the lilacs, we can be reminded of those ideals because they're also planted in us. Indeed. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussions of Walt Whitman. Next episode, we will look even farther back into the American past and to even deeper roots of democracy on the American continent. We're going to look at the Iroquois Constitution. So, thanks for listening, and as always, please share a link to our podcast to a, with a friend or friends. Push it out on your social media platforms uh, via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can still find us on all those places and also at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Text an episode to a friend, and if you're an educator, visit the website for instructional resources. Peace out.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 